Lockdown Science. Welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM. This show is what happens when two biologists self-isolate together and are trying to find something to do with their time other than meticulously documenting the behaviour of their cat. I'm Ellie. And I'm Andrew. And we're currently recording this show from Tier 4 Cambridgeshire, which for our international listeners basically means that we're back in proper lockdown. We've been told to stay at home, non-essential shops are closed... It's basically like being back in March, except that we can take unlimited exercise outdoors, but don't have the weather to take advantage of it. Yeah, I I went for a run this morning, which I was doing quite a lot in the first lockdown. And in the first lockdown, it was like every time I went out, the weather sort of got nicer. It was a little bit lighter in the morning. It was a little bit warmer. There were more birds singing. Today, it was just like freezing. There was nothing around. Worse than that, freezing fog. Yeah, and muddy as well. Really, really muddy. (laughs) So thanks for the unlimited exercise, Boris Johnson. But uh, Yeah, I think I'll I'll stay inside like a hermit and read more science. Yeah, read more science. Listen to some more science podcasts. Luckily for you guys, that's exactly what we've got coming up. See See what you did there. See what I did there? Yeah. Science of the Week. So usually in this feature, I quiz Andrew about the science news that's hit the headlines in the last week or so. But we're nearly at the end of 2020. And that means that this is our end of year special. Oh, wow. I know. So so you've gone harder than the half a tenuous link in a single question Christmas special that we had. I have. I've actually put a little bit more thought into this special. But you know me, I'm not I'm not super festive. So I wasn't going to do the whole thing as a New Year special, just a little little sprinkle of festivity here and there. So I thought I'd be especially cruel this week and not only ask you about recent news, but also chuck in a few questions from 2020 in general. Considering that 2020 was the year of the pandemic, finding non-COVID science news was really tougher than it should be. Like I had a whole year to choose from and... It was a bit tricky. Yeah. So so does this mean that the questions from the year will actually just revisit some of the questions that we had earlier in the year? No. No, oh. I made sure not to do that. No, no, we want to keep oh. it fresh, you know, keep it fresh, keep it going. No, no, I want to get I want to get five out of five. Yeah, like revisiting <laughs> the questions would still give you five out of five. Anyway, do you feel like you've kept up with the news this year? I mean, but the results of this quiz would suggest no. Yeah, I was trying to be nice there. No, okay, you haven't. <laughs> Now, because of that, because you haven't had the most stellar performance, I thought it would be a bit mean just to ask you about news from the whole year. So I've done a mix. This week, I have six questions for you. Bonus question. And they are half things that have been the news since the last show and half things from any time in 2020. Okay. You ready to go? Yeah. Number one. What news was leaked to the Guardian newspaper by a scientist from the Breakthrough Listen research programme just before Christmas that left people wondering whether we'd found alien life? Um, oh, I haven't heard this. This is quite exciting. So, Breakthrough Listen. Mm. So, it's something that they've recorded. Is it like, I don't know, something from Jodrell Bank where they've they've recorded something weird out in space? So it's not Jodrell Bank, but you are along the right lines. Okay. I'm, you know, I'm going to give you that because I'm feeling New Year's festive and all that. It's a mysterious radio signal that has been detected coming from the direction of our closest star, you know, other than our sun, of course, okay. which is Proxima Centauri. Ah. Yeah, exciting. The signal was actually picked up by the Parkes Observatory in Australia back in 2019, 
but researchers noticed it this autumn while going through the old data. Now, I say leaked. A scientist working on the Breakthrough Listen programme leaked the information but wanted to stay anonymous. Now, to be clear, this isn't a conspiracy. It sounds like a conspiracy. It isn't a conspiracy. It's not being leaked because it's trying to be hidden. It's just that it probably hasn't been released officially yet in a paper because they're still just trying to work out exactly what this signal is. Yeah, there's a bit of previous on this of like getting weird signals on radio things listening to space, right? And yes. then it turns out that it's pigeons in the antenna. Something boring. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So a little bit of background because you they sound like you weren't particularly familiar with the Breakthrough Listen project. No. Nope. So the Breakthrough Listen project is a $100 million programme of astronomical observations and analysis using some of the world's most advanced telescopes across the world to search for radio and optical frequency signals that might indicate the presence of another technological civilization in the universe. Mm. Basically, clever aliens. Yeah. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So what about this signal? Does it show us that we're not alone in the universe? Should we start considering what kind of welcome gift to buy our alien friends? Should we be having a big tidy up in readiness for their imminent arrival? Yes. I'm going to go with no. Oh. Probably not. The signal is interesting. But it definitely doesn't mean that scientists have found alien life near Proxima Centauri. So what do we know from this leak? Well, because of the way that the signal varies slightly in frequency, it doesn't seem to be coming from an antenna on Earth. So far, so promising. But the SETI, that's the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute, points out that it could be coming from an orbiting satellite. You know, that's one of our satellites, not an alien one. Or... Maybe more interestingly, it could be a signal coming from the direction of Proxima Centauri, but further away. Maybe that's aliens, maybe not aliens, who knows. Or it could be a natural radio emission from a planet orbiting Proxima Centauri with a really strong magnetic field. Again, Mm. it's unlikely that it's going to produce a signal that's that strong, but maybe, you know. Or, like you've indicated, maybe it's something incredibly local that they haven't noticed. So you mentioned the pigeons. And an example that SETI brought up to explain this was the example of a microwave in the break room of the park's observatory, which five years ago led researchers to think that they were detecting exciting signals from space, when really it was just an indication that one of their colleagues was prepping their lunch. (laughs) Brilliant. I love it. I love it. The thing that's great about this is, is like, this technology has to be so incredible to detect these signals from really, really far away. But necessarily, the signals that they're looking for are going to be really, really tiny and absolutely swamped by, you know, the really mundane stuff that's happening on Earth. Yeah. So it's like, they have to kind of really carefully eliminate all of these things. And sometimes it goes wrong. Yeah, sometimes it's pigeons, sometimes it's, you know, food in a microwave. Yep. But maybe it's aliens. Maybe. So, you know, it's exciting. And, and actually, they're being good by sort of saying all of these potential mundane things so that they sound like serious scientists, not just people screaming aliens every time they hear a noise. So we can trust them if it ever does happen because they're being sensible about it. I feel like the only way that 2020 as a year could be topped would would be if 2021 was the year of the aliens. I know. Yeah, not now. We, <laughs> we need a break, please. No, I can't deal with aliens right now. It depends what kind of alien, right? Like, if, if the aliens are like the Doctor, then... Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, I think that just sounds a little bit little bit too much for 2021. So let's just keep the aliens at a distance for now. Anyway, who knows? Maybe it's something mundane. Maybe it's something new and cool but not intelligent life. And maybe it's our future alien overlords sending us a quick message. 
only time will tell, but probably not worth getting too excited about right now. Number two. In June, a paper was published in the journal Nature reporting that researchers using the survey technique LIDAR had found evidence of a site built in the region inhabited by the ancient Mayans. What was special about this site? Um, was it one of the oldest human structures recorded? Ooh, I'm going to give you that. It's it, almost. This was the oldest and largest monumental construction found in the Maya region. So not ever, okay, but okay. in that region. Yeah. So Inamata et al. performed LIDAR surveys and archaeological digs in the Tabasco region of Mexico and found this impressive site. So for those who aren't familiar with LIDAR... What can you tell me about LIDAR? I can't remember what it stands for, but it's using light signals to detect the structure of objects on the ground. So you fly a plane over and it allows you to read not only the structure of the, uh, you know, the height of the surface, but also if it's used in forests a lot because it can tell you about the structure of the subcanopy as well as the canopy itself. Yeah, exactly. So its name was originally just a combination of the words light and radar, LIDAR, but it's also generally also accepted as standing for light detection and ranging. Mm. So like you said, LIDAR surveys, they generally fly aircraft or these days drones over an area with a laser attached. Now this laser emits tens of thousands of pulses of light at small sections of the area below and the light then bounces back to the sensors on the aircraft and the time taken for the light to bounce back allows scientists to create 3D maps of what the surface below looks like. And, you know, like you said, LIDAR is, is really cool because if you're just taking satellite photos of an area, you'd only be able to see the top layer of the area you're surveying. So, like you said, if you're looking at a forest, you'll just see the canopy level. But LIDAR can kind of penetrate below that. And it's, LIDAR's really useful in a study like this one because you can gain accurate sizes and shapes of structures on the ground as, as well as, you know, what literally what's there. And some areas which might be hard to access or partially covered by vegetation can be kind of illuminated by this mm. method. So it's very, very cool. Yeah. And what LIDAR allowed these researchers to see was that the monumental structure that they found was essentially hiding in plain sight. So from ground level, you know, when they were walking along, it wasn't clear that it was exceptionally big. But then from the air, the LIDAR data revealed this platform topped with structures, including a 13-foot-high pyramid and wow. at least nine causeways leading to it. It's a big boy. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's so weird to think that, like, presumably because the jungle is so thick, you just can't see that at ground level. Yeah, um, and, and they were also saying that it was just hard to sort of fully take in the size of it mm, from because the Because the trees are big as well. Yeah, I guess yeah. I guess because you don't have that sort of perspective on it. But it, it, it's enormous. So the volume of the platform and its structures on top is thought to be larger than even the largest of the Egyptian pyramids. So they then took samples from the site and used radiocarbon dating to try and find out how old it was. And that showed them that the construction started on it around 3,000 years ago. Wow. So, with a combination of very nifty science techniques of LIDAR plus radiocarbon dating, we now know it's the largest and oldest construction in the Mayan region. Mm, very cool. So that was a little bit of uh, earlier 2020 news. Now we're going to zoom back to very recent stuff. Number three. What material are Japanese scientists using to develop new satellites which will reduce the amount of space debris? Ooh, um... I, I want to feel like it's something that, that could degrade, but, how, but I don't know uh -huh. it would degrade in space. It's just good old wood. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah don't think too high tech. What do you know about space debris or space junk, as it's often called? Uh, well, 
we've sort of spent, we being people, have mm-hmm. spent kind of the last 50-odd years chucking stuff up into space, and now we've put quite a lot of stuff up there, which kind of at some point comes to the end of its usable life and ends up kind of floating around the planet. So we've, we've as well as kind of littering the Earth, we've also kind of littered our orbit with lots of things that are just floating around in the upper atmosphere. We're really good at this whole just chucking stuff everywhere situation, yeah. aren't we? Yeah, and a lot of it's metal, which is obviously not going to degrade very quickly. Yeah, well, so space junk generally refers to anything that humans have put into orbit, like you said. And it's like, you know, machinery, debris from space missions, and often it's referring to stuff that's no longer useful. Yeah. So according to the BBC, there are currently nearly 6,000 satellites circling Earth, and about 60% of them are not active. Wow. I know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? (laughs) So that's like, you know, either they've finished their mission or they've just failed, so they're just sitting up there in low Earth orbit. No one funds missions to go and recollect the satellites that are not being used anymore. No. Everyone wants to fund the missions to put up the new satellites to do something fancy. Well, exactly. And uh, Space Junk can be problematic for a few reasons. So sometimes it gets in the way of active space missions. That is, it hits an active satellite or the International Space Station. Yeah. And the thing is, with more technology on Earth, more satellites are being sent into space each year. And it's becoming pretty crowded out there. So in 2019, the European Space Agency had to change the course of one of their satellites because it was on track to bump into one of SpaceX's Starlink mega constellations of satellites. That's mad. Yeah. I mean, that's, apparently, that's the first time that the European Space Agency has had to manoeuvre one of its satellites out of the way of another active satellite. Mm. Like, sometimes small collisions happen, sometimes they have to manoeuvre things, but often it's for junk. And it just shows how crowded it is. It's absolutely mad. Anyway, so another problem with space junk is that it can fall back to Earth. And often this breaks up in the atmosphere and doesn't cause any damage at ground level. But when it does burn up in the atmosphere, it can leave alumina particles in the upper atmosphere, which is a type of pollution. Hmm. So the Sumitomo Forestry Company and Kyoto University in Japan are teaming up to develop the world's first satellites made of wood. Isn't that weird? Wood. Yeah. It doesn't sound right, does it? No, it feels like it would be too, it would be too heavy and not strong enough. Yeah, so the plan is that these will be ready for launch in 2023, so there's still a lot of development still to go on it. That's sooner than I was expecting, though. It is, yeah, that's true. I mean, we're already basically in 2021. Yeah. So they already know enough, it seems, but obviously it's something that's kind of a, a research and development secret at the moment, exactly yeah. how it's going to work. The idea is that if these wooden satellites start dropping back towards Earth, they'll burn up in the upper atmosphere without releasing harmful chemicals. Mm. But, I mean, that's what we're kind of getting at at the moment in our sort of scepticism, I guess, is thinking like, you know, it's difficult finding a type of wood that can withstand all the forces of actually getting it into space and, you know, function in the harsh conditions of space. Yeah, whilst so how, being made of wood. How do they not burn up on the way out? I don't know. I don't know. And I think this is, I mean, partly that kind of, they're being kind of secretive around this because obviously it's a very high worth project. Yeah. But I guess we'll find out a bit closer to 2023 exactly what's going on. Now, this is a fun fact. According to NASA, what speed can space junk reach in the lower Earth orbit? So it's sitting in lower Earth orbit, which, by the way, NASA referred to as LEO, lower Earth orbit, which I think is super cute. (laughs) So um, you've got space junk whizzing around in LEO. What speed is it going? I don't know. A thousand miles an hour? No, no. 18,000 miles per hour. What? That is seven times faster than a bullet. 
And then you understand why really quite small pieces of space junk can damage satellites. Yeah. Wow. Seven times faster than a speeding bullet. It doesn't matter if it's tiny. If it hits another satellite, it's going to do damage. Yeah. Crikey. You do not want to be out there with all that space junk hanging out in Leo. Number four. In April, a group of researchers from the Schmidt Ocean Institute reported that they had found the longest ever recorded animal off the coast of Western Australia. What was it? Oh, this has got to either be a squid or a jellyfish. I'm going to go with a jellyfish. No, but you're not a million miles off. But I'm not going to give you that. It was a giant siphonophore. Oh, yeah. I did know this. Yeah. Okay, okay, so knowing it's a giant siphonophore, can you guess how long it might be? It's the longest ever recorded. 100 metres? No, 46 metres. Okay. That's still pretty long. That's still pretty long, yeah. <laughs> so the team of researchers was exploring deep sea canyons off Australia's Ningaloo coast using a remotely controlled vehicle that submerged to depths of more than 4,000 metres. Can we just appreciate for a minute... Four kilometres down yeah. into the sea. That is terrifying. That's mad. But it, was, it wasn't it was manned. Anyway, that was how far the remotely controlled vehicle was going down. But the longest siphonophore was actually just found on the way back up at around 630 metres below the surface. So to put this length of 46 metres into perspective, because you already made it sound tiny by guessing 100 metres, <laughs> to put it in perspective... Blue whales, the world's largest but not longest animal, grows to a maximum of around 30 metres. And yeah. we think of them as being really long. Well, right? that's what I was working off, that it had to be longer than that. And I sort of guessed that maybe maybe some things were, had been found that are longer than them already. Yeah, but I mean, they're but, really long. Yeah. So 46 okay. metres, that is long. Um, how many double-decker buses is it? Because that's that's the sort of accepted unit of measurement for long things. That's true. I've really missed a beat here by not putting that in. I'm so sorry. But I'm going to start a petition to measure everything in blue whales instead from here and Okay, after. right, yeah. yeah. So this, so this is like 1.3 blue whales. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so some of you might not be familiar with what a siphonophore is because other than it having a really cool name, it's not something that we talk about very much. So many siphonophores live in the deep ocean and are very long and thin. And calling them an animal is a little bit complicated because they aren't just one homogenous organism. They're actually a colony of lots of tiny organisms called zooids, which is another great word. This is full of great words. Anyway, these zooids can't survive except as part of the siphonophore. It's not like, you know, I guess you think of like a colony of mussels or or ants or something where, you know, they all stick together, but they're full organisms with the ability to eat, excrete and, you know, live from their own biology. The zooids in the siphonophore are genetically clones of each other and they only exist as part of the siphonophore. So again, within the siphonophore, you can tell I'm just enjoying saying siphonophore at this point. Within a siphonophore, these zooids have specialist roles. So some help the whole siphonophore to move, some help it to feed and so on. Isn't that weird and cool and just a little bit sci-fi? Yeah, they're they're very cool. The question here is, has the siphonophore really claimed the title of world's longest animal? Well, that's what you just told me. I know, but... Unfortunately, it's not totally obvious. In 1864, a bootlace worm, also a long, stringy, kind of gross-looking thing, 
washed up on the shore in St Andrews in Scotland that was measured at 55 metres long Ooh. and became officially the world's longest animal. So you might be like, well, that was earlier and that's obviously longer, 55, more than 46, what are you on about? But there's a lot of suspicion that it might have been stretched. <laughs> yeah. You can bet you can bet it was men measuring it, right? Yeah. It's just ridiculous. It's just like, oh, it's not quite long and just give it a stretch. Just tug it. Just give it a tug. It's fine. So yeah, they think it might have been stretched after it was found. So it's it's not reliably the longest ever. But according to the Guinness World Records. Yes, that bootlace worm is the longest, but this giant cephalophore, as it clocks in at 46 metres, is looking likely to be the longest ever reliably recorded animal. Right. Yeah. No one's okay. given it a little stretch. Yeah. Imagine how long you could make this 46 metre siphonophore if you gave that a stretch. Yeah, well, it depends how stretchy they are. Do That's they, true. Do they, they, I'm guessing that if they're zooids, maybe they kind of come apart a bit more easily than a That's a very good point, than actually. Than a stretchy worm. Yeah, they're very delicate. Yeah. So that's a good point. They they probably would just break if mm. you tried doing that. So don't give that a go. No. But equally, stop stretching things to beat world records. Yeah. That applies across all, just generally. <laughs> just I'm not going to go into it, but just generally, don't do that. Bad form. Number five. Scientists have discovered something new called kernowite. What is it? Uh, so, it sounds yeah. like a mineral of some sort. Maybe. And I'm going to guess that it might be a mineral found in Cornwall. <gasps> Why did you guess that? Because kerno, uh, pronounced probably incorrectly, is the Cornish word for Cornwall. It is. I'm really impressed by that. Yeah. You've, you've spent a fair amount of time in Cornwall, right? Yeah, yeah. We did used to have a lot of family holidays to Cornwall. Yeah, it is. It's a mineral from Cornwall. Oh, full marks. Yes. So team headed by Mike Rumsey, the principal curator of minerals at the Natural History Museum. Really cool job, by the Excellent way. Excellent title, yeah. They analysed a rock collected from a mine in Cornwall 220 years ago and found that it was sufficiently chemically different from other known minerals to be classified as a new species. Mineralogists previously thought that these samples of kernowite were a type of another mineral called lyriconite. But what we now know is kernowite is deep green and lyriconite is blue. The team were analysing it because they were trying to work out why lyriconite varies so much in colour from blue to dark green. But in the process, they found that the deepest green colour is actually an entirely different species. Hmm. I didn't realise that minerals were referred to as species. I know. This is, isn't that cool? That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking, right? The, the use of the term species can refer to minerals. It's basically taken from the same scheme, the Linnaean scheme of classifying animals into yeah. different groups. Uh, but you can call minerals species as well. But you don't have genuses of minerals in the same way. Yeah. But as you said, the name Kernowite comes from the Cornish word for Cornwall. And it's really exciting because it's rare to find new species of minerals and even more rare to find one right under our noses here in the UK. Yeah. So welcome, new minerals. Yeah. I wonder how much of it is out there, whether it's like something that's that's super rare and is only found in Cornwall or whether actually it's kind of in a lot of places because people were previously just classifying it as as the other thing. So most lyriconite is found in Cornwall, okay. um, they did say. And at the moment, they only have two samples which have been verified to be kernowite, uh, one which is in a private collection and one that's in the Natural History Museum. Okay. But they're saying that they expect that probably there is more kernowite out there. It's just 
everyone thought it was Lyriconite before. Yeah. So it, it's not a very geographically widely distributed mineral. But it's likely that there are samples that we just don't know about, probably in private collections, in, in other museums. Yeah. But interestingly, the uh, site that this particular rock that was at the Natural History Museum was mined from is now... You, we can't go back to it. It was a mine, uh, and it's now covered with a housing estate, I think. So oh, weird. Okay. Yeah, so there's no way to go back to that particular mine and see if we can find more. It's, yeah. That's it. This one is a, it's a special rock. OK, and question number six, the last one. And this the bonus is one. The bonus one. And it's from 2020 in general. How does a butterfly's wing length affect its ability to buffer itself against air temperature? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did do that. Oh, no. Spoiler alert for anyone who doesn't get why he's laughing. Uh, this is from Andrew's paper, published in what month? Uh, September. And there is nothing more embarrassing than getting the answer wrong to your own paper. So... How does a butterfly's wing length affect its ability to buffer itself against air temperature? <sighs> well, in general, species with longer wings are better at buffering their body temperature against changes in air temperature than species with shorter wings. But there's also an important effect of family. So so actually more there's more variation explained by differences between families. So white butterflies are better at doing it than um, the blues or the nymphalids. But within a family... Size is important. No. And bigger species are better than smaller species. Yes, that is in fact the answer I have, so I'll let you have that. Oh, good, yeah. <laughs> that would have been embarrassing to get wrong. It would have been. Usually I'd sort of like have something prepared for like why we should, you know, give a damn about this. But why don't you explain? Why should I care about a buffer? What is buffering ability of a butterfly? Oh, wow, you've caught me on the... <laughs> Ah, right. Okay. So we were interested in looking at this because uh, we wanted to see how butterflies respond to changes in fine scale changes in air temperature. So rather than just looking at sort of the population level of how how butterflies and, you know, populations of butterflies are responding to climate change. The, the mechanisms underpinning that are going to be wrapped up in how individual butterflies are able to respond to finer scale changes. So by measuring the body temperature of butterflies and then the air temperature at the same time, we looked at how, over a range of different air temperatures, butterflies of the same species manage their body temperature. So we found that some species over quite a wide range of air temperatures have quite a narrow range of body temperatures, so they're keeping their body temperature fairly stable. Whereas other species over a relatively narrow range of air temperatures actually have quite a wide range of body temperatures. So their body temperature is varying quite a lot. So we refer to that former case of the stable body temperature as having a good buffering ability and the latter case as a poor buffering ability and hypothesise that the, that the good buffering ability essentially means that species are better able to cope with changes in air temperature because... Body temperature is really important to butterflies. It, it determines how active they can be and activity levels can be important for things like feeding and defending territories and mating. So species that are able to maintain a more stable body temperature are presumably able to keep their temperature closer to what they want it to be in order to perform all of those behaviours and therefore will do better in a wider range of environments than species that are less able to maintain it stable body temperature cool now i'm going to do this like typical thing that you get in interviews i go 
Cool, cool. That all sounds like science and stuff. But how do you test a butterfly's body temperature? Does it like, you go like stick out your tongue and it's like, nah, and then you test its like little thermometer on its tongue? Yeah, well, so so butterflies don't really have tongues. Mm. That's the first thing, yeah. 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 They've got an appendage called a proboscis, uh, which is kind of in place of their mouth. And so that sort of, you could see it sometimes rolled up next to their face and they'll extend it and put it down. It's basically a straw a fancy straw that they can use to suck up nectar Um, but no you don't take the temperature from their proboscis you catch them in a net and then use a fine thermocouple on the end of a wire it's like half a millimeter in diameter poke that through the net and just touch it on the outside of the butterfly's body and that gives you an instantaneous temperature reading that tells you its temperature because butterflies are quite small the external temperature is a pretty good approximation for their internal temperature. Mm. And no butterflies are harmed in the process? Nope, they were all released. They were all released and they just fly on their way going, who was that dude? That was pretty weird. Yeah, that was weird. Not sure I said that was okay, but <laughs> here we go. Well, there you go. You know what? I'm going to give you a point for that one. I think you, oh, good. I think yeah, you knew good. what you were talking about. I was really tempted to ask you about my recent paper as well. Uh, but... <laughs> I don't think I want to know how little you could tell me about it. So for my own like self-esteem, I think I'll keep that one to myself. OK, well, at the end of that Bumper 2020 quiz round, you got four out of six. Nice. Mm, I think that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's not too... I mean, if we leave off the outer six, that's like one of your best scores ever. Yeah, and I mean, I did get a point that was basically a given because it was on my own my own research. So... It was three out of the first five. But you know what? That's a danger point because, yes, it's fine if you get it, but if you hadn't got it, how bad would that have been? Yeah. You would have just... Had, how had, you had in shame. Had such a year that I'd forgotten all about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, ask me about my last paper. I'm not sure I'd be able to give you an answer, so there we go. Journal Club. Right, so we've come to that point in the show where we share some of the weird and wonderful science papers that we found this week. So you're first up, Andrew. What have you got for me? Okay, so I found a study which, frankly, I think we should have covered ages ago because it's it's kind of, it's exactly on brand for the sort of stuff that, well, at least that I've picked for, for our papers here. So we've previously considered the fluid dynamics of penguins. We have. And we've also discussed the essence of dogness. Mm-hmm. But this week, it's all about the state of matter of cats. Oh, that sounds very highbrow. Yeah. So I think first we need a quick run through of the states of matter. Do you know what the states of matter are? Okay. so are we talking about like uh, liquid, gas, solid, that kind of thing? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, So a solid is defined as matter which maintains a fixed volume and shape, such as a stone or a wooden block. Mm. Liquid is defined as a matter which maintains a fixed volume but can adapt to the shape of its container, such as water or milk. And a gas is matter which expands to occupy whatever volume is available, such as oxygen or carbon dioxide. And all of these examples are, of course, given a room temperature because matter can move between being a solid, a liquid or a gas by the addition or removal of energy, i.e. by heating it up or cooling it down. So with that in mind, which state of matter would you like to assign cats Kept at room temperature. Cats too. <laughs> you should always keep a cat at room temperature. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think that I think that like GCSE physics would tell me that it's probably a solid. It's it's got to be a solid, right? Yeah, because it's sort of. I mean, in... it's like a fixed shape. Yeah, a cat, a cat is a cat is cat shaped. Yeah. Except we have probably a relatively solid cat. 
Um, <laughs> what does that in, mean? In, so, well, I don't know. I'm the, she's never quite exhibited the behaviour of some of the cats that we're going to meet today. Okay. But physicist Mark Antoine Fardin might disagree with you. Mm-hmm. So in 2014, Fardin wrote a letter to the Rheology Bulletin demonstrating that cats have some liquid properties. Oh, I see where this is going. Mm. And I'll note here that rheology is not, as I first thought, the study of rheas, the large birds that are related to ostriches and emus, but it's actually the study of the flow of matter, uh-huh. which I'd never heard of before. So, Fardin returns to the definition of solids, liquids and gases. Matter which maintains a fixed volume and shape. Matter which maintains a fixed volume but adapts to the shape of its container. And matter which expands to occupy whatever volume is available. And he points out that the key words maintains, adapts and expands are verbs Mm. which describe actions unfolding over time. And this time, particularly the time taken to adapt or expand, can be measured and is collectively referred to as the relaxation time. Okay. (laughs) That's like between Christmas and New Year. (laughs) Yeah, I think we're in the relaxation time now. We're just kind of chilling out, adapting to our new shape after eating all the Christmas dinner. (laughs) And then then we sort of have to take on another new shape when the New Year's resolutions kick in. Right, right, yeah, that one. So if this relaxation time is substantially longer than the time over which we make an observation, then we'll define an object as solid. Because a stone, however long you watch it for, will not adapt to the shape of a container. Yeah, sure. But if the relaxation time is substantially shorter than the observation time, then we detect a liquid. So at room temperature, water will quickly adapt to the shape of a container that you put it in. So while we may glance at a cat and see it as a solid, observations of resting cats suggest that they may take on other forms. Mm. So at this point... The theory is really best illustrated by the figures. And I'd highly recommend that everyone goes and takes a look at the, frankly, excellent figures in this paper. So I'll make sure I put a link to them on Twitter and in the podcast description. Yeah, so this is uh, Fardin, so F-A-R-D-I-N. Yes. And the paper's called? On the Rheology of Cats. Excellent. Yeah. So using these examples, Fardin suggests that the relaxation time of cats is likely to be in the range of between a second and a minute. Mm. Um, although lively kittens might have relaxation times of up to a few hours. He also suggests that older cats may acquire gaseous properties (laughs) (laughs) because they're not incompressible. But the details aren't really discussed except for reference to figure 1D, which is particularly good. Uh, So I would suggest that there's probably some scope for a follow-up study. What is what is figure one D? Can we see um, figure one D? It's yeah, I'll find it for you. It's it's this beauty here. Oh wow. Okay, so um let's try and like paint that with words. Uh it's essentially a very floofy looking white cat which has shaped itself into sort of a wide vase and is looking dead at the camera as if to say and what, mate? Yes, yeah, so and we think this is sort of ga- gaseous properties. Right well, I, I think so. So I think the point is that because this rather floofy cat has a rather floofy tail, mm. and the tail is out of the vase and appears to be expanding to fill the volume of the rest of the room. Right. I, I think I think is the point he's getting at. He doesn't really go into it. Actually, now that you've got this paper up, and I'm just looking at these beautiful figures, 
I mean, A is just like cats flying in space, like a gas. That's no, uh, no, 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 no. That's solid cats. Is that meant to be that's solid? Solid cat? cats because it's instantaneous photos of cats where they're all cat shaped. Okay, and then the other photos are just cats, basically like liquid, just shaping themselves. Yeah, well. there's one in a wine glass, which is rather weird. Yeah, it must be a kitten. Yeah, there's one in a sink. Yeah, it is. Uh, the, it is at one with the sink. The one in the sink might be the same cat as the one in the vase. Yeah, it might be actually. Because I think the point is that it's. It's um, its tail is within the sink, so it's uh, it's liquid there. Yes. But then in the in the vase, it's sort of expanded to fill the volume. Okay, you have to you have to go and look up this paper. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's open access. You, you can get it for free. So, if cats have a measurable relaxation time, then what other liquid properties can we observe or define in them? Well, rheology is the study of the flow of matter, and in basic rheology, there are only two states: solids that deform and fluids that flow. So in this case, both liquids and gases are fluids because they both flow. However, between these extremes, we can observe intermediate properties depending, again, on the ratio between the relaxation time and the observation time. This ratio gives a measure of viscosity and elasticity. So materials with a quick relaxation time relative to the observation time are more viscous or more fluid. And materials with a long relaxation time relative to the observation time are more elastic or more solid. But this is a continuum, so a solid may not be purely elastic and a fluid may not be purely viscous. Mm -hmm. So as an example, Fardan notes that water droplets bouncing on a water-repellent surface can behave elastically, even though water, at room temperature, classically behaves as a fluid. Therefore, when fluids are complex, like our putatively fluid cats... (laughs) The distinction between elasticity and viscosity can become very unclear. Yeah, okay. So Fardan suggests that in the flow of cats, the surface tension between the cat and its surrounding medium can be very important. So with further exceptional use of illustrative figures, Fardan shows that cats exhibit a yield stress. What's a yield stress? So so a a yield stress threshold is a threshold that sort of determines whether they'll flow or not. So below the yield stress threshold, they won't flow. So the analogy for this is like tomato ketchup, which although it's sort of liquidy-ish, it doesn't always just flow out of the bottle because it's kind of quite viscous and and a bit solid. You have to kind of whack it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So cats. You shouldn't whack a cat though. No, don't whack a cat to make it flow. So so a cat won't necessarily flow. I'm going to find you the figure for this. So this cat here, figure 2C, is below the yield stress threshold. Okay, so this is a very small and very sad-looking cat sitting in a jar, basically. Very much not flowing out of the jar, just chilling in the jar. Yeah, it's it's a tilted jar. It's crucial. It's, it's right. not an upright jar with a hole at the top. It's yeah. a tilted jar, so the jar's on its side, um, and the cat doesn't flow out of it. Yeah. But the flow of a cat also depends on the surface with which it makes contact. A property which he defines as superfelidophobicity. Oh, that's a word. Yeah, as in felid for cat and phobe for... Fear. R- fear and... And repellent, I guess. Repellent, yes. So Fardan notes that while some quite rough surfaces can have low superfelidophobicity, i.e. the cat spreads out on them, see figure 2D, uh, which is a cat kind of lying across a rather uncomfortable looking... Um, it's like I a think set it's of railings, a, it's isn't a, it? Yeah, railings outside a window, I think. So that's l- low superfelidophobicity. Cats have a low affinity for other substrates, like water, i.e., mm. water is superfelidophobic. So what, was that, what does that mean? That water repels cats. Okay. 
So, significant relative velocity between a cat and a surface tend to prevent fluid behaviour, i.e. a cat sliding across a wooden floor will tend to be tense. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, as, as shown by figure 2F. Of a cat looking stressed sliding across sliding the floor. across a wooden floor. Uh, but gravity enhances adhesiveness, i.e. cats stick fairly well to near vertical surfaces. They do. See do figure that. 2G of a cat clinging onto a wall. <laughs> So what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, the paper kind of concludes there's there's some detailed discussion of flow instabilities in cats, which is a phrase that I enjoy, but we probably don't have time to go into it because this is quite a long episode already. But there is also a suggestion that cats are not isolated fluid systems, but are able to transfer and absorb stresses from their environment. So stress in physics is defined as, as the forces which neighbouring particles exert on each other. So cats might be able to transfer and absorb stresses from their environment. And the example that's given for this is that in cat cafes, stressed customers stroke cats and become calmer. <laughs> that is not the so... same thing. <laughs> that is 100% not the same thing. I think we can all agree that this is a hilarious piece of science and that this guy is a proper scientist who's making a funny. I love it. Yeah, I love this paper because... And it's exactly the sort of thing I like talking about on this because it's taking like really serious science and applying it to something really silly. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, it's just doing something so rigorously and brilliantly, but for completely silly outcomes. And it's just that, you know, there are equations and stuff in this paper. It's yeah, written, science, math it's written so, so seriously. Apart from one point where. He talks about capillaries and how... Because, you know, like, capillaries can sort of soak up water. Yeah. And every time a capillary gets mentioned, it's spelled capillary. Apart from on one occasion, it's spelled capillary. <laughs> and I'm not sure whether that's a genuine typo or just him chucking it in there. Is that an Easter it's egg? Funny. Yeah, Easter I think egg. it might be an Easter egg. So that's about it. Are cats liquid, then? Well, I think I'm... Well, I'm convinced, at least, that they're not 100% solid. Yeah, so yeah. am I. And you know what you said about Suki? Like, about her being quite solid. But you know what? She'll sit on the sofa sometimes, on, like, a crack in the sofa. Mm. And she will just mould into she it. She does just mould into it, yeah. She's never done anything weird like climbing into a jar. No. But although it turns out there are links in the bottom of this to the, the methods for this paper are demonstrated by a link to a YouTube video of a cat climbing into a jar, which is also highly worth a watch. Okay. <laughs> good to know so, you were doing some solid work for this episode. Yeah. So Suki... Oh, very good. So Suki's never done that, but I'm really hoping that we can get a photo of a slightly liquid Suki to illustrate this before this episode airs. Yeah, that's true. Maybe we'll tweet it out. Yeah. Okay. What's your study this week? So my study is also animal-related this week, and it focuses on one of the most majestic creatures on Earth. Oh, you're on cats as well, are you? <laughs> Something a little bit smarter than cats. I thought you were going to say a little bit more majestic. <laughs> a, li- <laughs> a little bit more majestic too, and okay. uh, a heck of a lot cleverer. It's the octopus. Oh. Yeah. So they're famed for their intelligence. They show tool use, and under EU law, they are treated as honorary vertebrates when it comes to, you know, what you're allowed to do with them in the process of scientific research, i.e. basically they get afforded greater ethical consideration before anything is done to them. Yeah. Because, well, I guess it's because their intelligence implies that they may be more able to feel pain or distress and yeah. and suffer lasting harm than other invertebrates. Yeah. But this doesn't mean that they always take the high road. Sometimes they're just as salty as the rest of us. <laughs> this week... 
I've been reading a new report in Ecology Journal by Sampaio et al. titled, and this will just give it away, Octopuses Punch Fishes During Collaborative Interspecific Hunting Events. <laughs> in plain English, when an octopus and some fish hunt together, sometimes the octopus punches a fish. Now... <laughs> Good. Yeah, I mean, that's that seems exactly like the sort of jerk move you'd get out of the highly intelligent animal. It's got its hunting partner and then it's just like, well, I want to mess things up a bit and just punch the fish. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you try messing up this podcast, you know what will happen. Yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm the fish in the situation. <laughs> you're the fish. Anyway, this got quite a lot of press this week because, I mean, for obvious reasons, I think we all just love the pettiness that we're projecting onto the octopus. If you Google this, you'll find some amazing videos taken by the authors of the study of octopuses just, you know, punching fish. And while this is obviously funny, the biology behind it is really quite interesting. It may come as a surprise to some people to learn that octopuses sometimes collaborate with different coral reef fish species to find food. Did you know about that? No, I knew that you get quite a lot of collaboration on reefs, but I didn't know that any of them involved octopuses. Yeah, they do. Mm. So this report talks about how the different species pursue the prey that they're most equipped for hunting, with octopuses pursuing prey within rock and coral crevices, and while other fishes search the seafloor and others guard the water column. So cooperative hunting associations like this arise because, like, overall, it benefits all parties. This is kind of basic behavioural ecology stuff. Now, maybe in these situations, you know, the octopuses might lose some food to a hunting partner. But overall, if having hunting partners helps them to find more food than they would have done on their own, and this is above the food that they might lose to any partners, then this kind of cooperative hunting can evolve. But not all partners are equally cooperative. Maybe some individuals in the partnership will try grabbing more food than their fair share, and because of this, sometimes what the authors term partner control mechanisms, OK, a cheeky punch to the face, may emerge to prevent future exploitation and keep everyone in check. Oh, so it's because the fish are trying to exploit the octopus. Potentially. Rather... Ah, OK. Yeah. I thought it was the octopuses exploiting the fish and just being like, well, you, Mr Fish with no arms, I've got eight arms and therefore I could use seven of those arms to steal your dinner whilst using the eight arm, eighth arm to punch you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, so the, the most of the cases, it seems, the octopus is just trying to teach the fish a lesson, oh, basically. okay. Yeah. So the punch is a slight cost to the octopus because it uses energy. But obviously it's a greater cost to, you know, the punchy, the fish, yeah. because it results in the fish either not getting the prey item that it was about to eat, being moved to a less advantageous location in the hunting group, or just being evicted from the group entirely in some mm. cases. When you say when you say being moved to a less advantageous position in the hunting group, I mean, that, like, I was initially imagining that this was like a little sort of punch to the face that maybe stuns the fish a bit. But saying move to a less advantageous position makes it sound like it's one of those sort of cartoon punches where the fish then goes flying across the ocean. A, no, it doesn't, it doesn't go flying, but they are quite like tight formations, so it does make a difference. Okay. Here's a strong punch that you should watch these videos. Anyway, a number of the videos that the authors captured show situations when a punch would give the octopus an immediate benefit. So an octopus would punch a fish and get access to a prey item. Yeah. And that makes sense, right? It's worth that small energetic cost of punching because the octopus gets the bigger gain of a meal. But there were other videos where an octopus punches a fish but then makes no attempt to grab any prey. So what's going on here? 
Mm. Well, one option is that there's no immediate benefit to the octopus, but maybe a delayed one. If the fish partner has misbehaved, say they've hogged too much of the food, then the octopus punches them now to dissuade the fish from similar uncollaborative behaviour in the future. Now, the alternative suggestion is better. It's that there are no benefits to the octopus. The punching is just, and I quote, spiteful (laughs) behaviour. So the punching is still to punish the fish for uncollaborative behaviour, but there aren't any future benefits to the octopus of punching. That is, like, the fish won't learn from the punching and do better in the future. The octopus is just punching in aggression and out of spite. Brilliant. So basically, the octopus is just angry and just punching because sometimes life sucks and you've got to punch a fish in the face, you know? Yeah. So is this, this like, one octopus hunting with like a shoal of fish yeah so it happens with different species so it's not necessarily a shoal of the same species of fish but it's you know an octopus and multiple different fish and sometimes a fish gets punched in the face i I like to think that i I like to think that this is almost like a sort of mafia situation where the the octopus is the godfather and the fish are kind of all of his minions and the octopus is sort of running the show and has to kind of keep them all keep them all in check so if any of them kind of step out of line the octopus is just like punch in the face i mean that's really what i'm feeling here i'm also feeling this is like maybe a slightly darker sequel to like finding nemo finding dory you know <laughs> you can have like the mafia version punching nemo punching punching nemo <laughs> Don't show it to your kids. Uh, anyway, I, I love this. I love this whole like spiteful punching by octopus. Nemo grows up. Life on the coral reef gets rough. You should see it. it's quite a powerful punch. Anyway, it's it's very easy to imagine that the octopus has like emotions and it's like, you idiot, like how dare you? I'm going to punch you in the face. You know, th- that's not what they mean by out of spite, but that's also going to make a much better Disney film, so that's what we're going with. Anyway, the authors do end by saying that disentangling these potential reasons for punching behaviour requires more work on this severely understudied system to fully understand the costs, benefits and control mechanisms in collaborative hunting that would lead to octopuses sometimes punching fish. That is science speak for please give us more money to spend more time watching octopuses punch fish because it's funny. Yeah, octopuses. Beautiful, clever but potentially sometimes just jerks. <laughs> Animal etymology. A couple of weeks ago, we got an email to lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com. That's our email address. Hint, hint. Send nice us an plug. email. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it's from Kate Howlett pointing out that I'd pulled Andrew up on the incorrect use of platypi as a plural for platypus a couple of episodes ago. But last series, I let him get away with octopi. Now, Kate is right. Octopus comes from the Greek for eight, octo, and foot, poos. So if we want to try to be smart about a plural for it, we should give it a Greek ending, not a Latin one. So that would be octopodes, not octopi. Or you could just go with the accepted English plural of octopuses and annoy people a little bit less. But as well as this, Kate also suggested in that email that we should have a regular animal etymology slot where I explain where animals' names come from. Basically, Kate was being very kind and giving me an excuse to nerd out about animals and words. So I didn't really take any convincing. And here is that feature. I'm not sure whether I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but although I'm currently doing a PhD in evolutionary biology, my first degree was actually in classics. I graduated from that about seven years ago now, but I still like to, you know, flex my Latin and classical Greek muscles from time to time. Yeah. So Especially the- when it involves pulling me up on my sometimes deliberate, sometimes not deliberate mispronunciation. Yeah, sometimes deliberate, names. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, it makes me feel like my student debt isn't entirely in vain. So I like this as an idea. So I was trying to think of what to kick off with, and I think I have a good one. Firstly, I want to see what you know about this week's choice. Okay. Can you tell me what the common name is of the animal Struthio camelus? Struthio camelus is its scientific name. So what do you think we know that animal better as? I don't know. I'm not familiar with Struthio. I I don't know what the genus is. But I know camelopardalis is the Latin name for a giraffe. So it's making me think of something kind of spotty, but I'm not really sure. Well, it is actually an ostrich. Oh, Hmm. okay. So there are actually two living species of ostrich, the Somali ostrich and the common ostrich. And Struthio camelus is the common ostrich. So do you know what Struthio camelus might mean then in that context and like where it might have come from? Mm, No, I've got no idea. So Struthio is from late Latin, meaning ostrich, and camelus is Latin, meaning camel. But... Okay, so it is the same. It is. It is camel, yeah. But if we delve a little bit deeper, it gets more interesting. So both words actually originally came from ancient Greek. Struthos is the Greek for sparrow, and camelos is the Greek for camel. So ancient Greeks essentially referred to ostriches as camel sparrows. Why do you think they called them camel sparrows? I've got no idea. (laughs) They look nothing like a sparrow or a camel. No. Oh, is it because... Camels can be used as beasts of burden, so they carry stuff. And ostriches are big enough that you could maybe load up an ostrich and get it to carry some stuff for you. But ostriches are birds, like sparrows, and so they're camel sparrows because they're like birds that can be used like camels. I really like that, but no, that's not what I have. But oh, right, it's very okay. imaginative. You know, well done. Patronising, <laughs> well done. It's generally thought that it's because ostriches have long necks like camels. But it's also been suggested that it might be because they're accustomed to dry areas like camels. Right. And sparrows just because it's a bird. I think my <laughs> so, explanation was better, to be honest. <laughs> the other term that ancient Greeks used for ostriches was struthos megale, which means big sparrow. Wow, that, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's detailed, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a bird. It's large. We've seen those birds before. We call them sparrows. That was a big one. Big sparrow. There you yeah, go. That's it. I, I'm glad we didn't continue with naming all birds based on their comparison to sparrows. Medium sparrow. Yeah. Slightly larger than medium sparrow. Green sparrow. Yellow sparrow. <laughs> so there you go. The scientific name for a common ostrich, Struthio camelus, basically comes from the fact that they look like camel sparrows. See the resemblance? No. Isolation recommendations. Right, well, it's time to hear what you're going to recommend for this week for people in lockdown. A lot of the UK right now is in quite a strict lockdown, so people are probably looking for things to do inside their houses or maybe in their local area. What have you got for them? Okay, I suggest that people check out the Wildlife Trust's 12 Days Wild. This is a thing which is basically come from a scheme that the Wildlife Trust has been running for the last few years called 30 Days Wild, which they normally do in June. And the idea is to encourage people and families to get outside and and explore nature around them and go and find something different to do in nature. Or It might be going out and, and looking for new animals or plants. It might be making things like bird feeders and stuff every single day in June. 
this is like the Christmas version. So mm-hmm. like the 12 days of Christmas, we have 12 days wild. And it's a challenge to do one wild thing a day between the 25th of December and the 5th of January. So it's targeted at the holiday period. And in a time when, you know, it's dark and cold outside and you might feel temptation to kind of stay indoors they're trying to kind of encourage people to get outside into the garden into their local park and and go and do something wild and if you head over to the wildlife trust website wildlifetrust.org forward slash 12 days wild you can sign up for a newsletter which will give you lots of ideas for things you can go and go and do and because it's all based around being outside it's completely lockdown friendly that's true. So at the moment, we are recording on a Tuesday, which means that this has already started. But they've got a good like Twitter account as well, where you can see stuff that's already happened, give you ideas for what you've got to do. And you know what? They're just doing it as a 12 days of Christmas because that's a thing. You don't have to stop on the 5th yeah, of it's January. Winter, it's winter wildlife. So, you know, the, the stuff will, will be good for doing throughout January and February. Exactly. And keeping you sane during the winter months. Yes, very important. You're allowed your daily exercise unlimited at the moment so as long as you're staying in your local area go 12 days wild yeah go whole of january wild okay what's your recommendation well it's got so long into lockdown now that there's just part of me that wants to say you know what my recommendation this week is watch tiktok and eat ice cream but something has come along to save you from that sad window into my life, and that is the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures. So many of you probably know about the lectures, but if you don't, then don't let the word lecture put you off. These are anything but stuffy. I love the Christmas lectures, so I decided to look up a bit of history on them. And it turns out that the Christmas lectures were started... Actually, can you guess when they were started? It was the 1800s, wasn't it, by Michael Faraday? Yes, 1825 by Michael Faraday. And they've been broadcast on national television since 1936, which makes them the world's oldest science TV series. Mm. Which I thought was pretty cool. They have a different theme and a different presenter each year. And that presenter uses fun and dynamic ways to explain science concepts in an accessible way to the audience. So they're generally made with kids in mind, but I've heard of loads of adults who love them too, because they're just wholesome, nerdy fun. This year's theme is Planet Earth, a user's guide. And unusually, each of the three lectures will actually have a different main presenter. So we're recording this on Tuesday, like I was saying. So, so far, we've seen Professor Chris Jackson's about what geology tells us about climate change. And then the next one is presented by Dr. Helen Chersky, looking at how the ocean supports life on the planet. And then the last one is by Dr. Tara Shine, who will look at how the Earth produces oxygen and what increasing carbon dioxide emissions mean for planetary balance. Chris Jackson's was really good, wasn't it? Yeah, it was great. He's just a really good communicator and the content is really interesting. Plus, he talks about volcanoes and who doesn't love volcanoes or at least find volcanoes awesome? Yeah, with a model volcano exploding as well. Yeah, and also just that like classic RI kind of like cheesy models of things, kind of almost like home science experiment style, but kind of on steroids. So it's very cool. Uh, By the time this show goes out, you'll be able to catch the lectures on iPlayer or on the Royal Institution's webpage. So go ahead, grab a blanket and a hot chocolate and nerd out in front of the telly that's my current one which is very much in contrast to yours so maybe go out during the day do wild stuff come in in the evening watch a royal institution christmas lecture I think that's all we've got time for, partly because we've got a fixed time slot on CAMFM and partly because it's nearly time for the next Christmas lecture. But we'll be back with another episode of Lockdown Science in two weeks. 
In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. So if you've got any cool science you think we should cover on the show, or if you just want to say hi and tell us what you think about anything we've chatted about today, you can email us at lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter. I'm Eleanor underscore Bladen. And I'm Andrew underscore Bladen. By the time the next show is out, it'll be a brand new year. 2020 has been a spicy one. I mean, I'm not sure if it's felt long or short, but it's just not exactly been a continuous barrel of laughs. But thank you for listening to this podcast. You've been sending us your emails and generally just being lovely and supportive. And it's been a really good distraction from the dumpster fire that is 2020. So we hope 2021 brings better things for all of you. But one thing we can be sure of is that great science will continue to be published, which will give us some fodder for awe, amazement and gentle mocking. See you in 2021 for another episode of Lockdown Science on CAMFM. (laughs) 